The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! I remember some men started prying and others started crying. Um, Partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm James Kitely, your host for Wings Over Australia component to Wings Over New Zealand. And we're here at uh, Kyneton Airport, which is uh, about an hour north of Melbourne, and we're here with Matt Henderson. Hi. G'day, guys. Uh, thanks for coming up and visiting. Thank no you problem. for having us. Yeah, yeah. Lovely day here and uh, sitting in your hangar and just behind us is a really beautiful polished bird dog. Uh, and outside we've got a uh, CT4 air trainer. Tell us about your air trainer. Uh, so the, the CT4 uh, that we own is uh, serial number 46. Um, we've had it for about eight and a half years now. Yep. Um, they were uh, sold out of RAF service in 93 um, and uh, the... Uh, the one that we've got now uh, was uh, purchased from auction by a, a chap in Canberra and he owned it up until uh, 2007 when we purchased it off him. Um, okay. And uh, this is quite a special air trainer, isn't it? Uh, that's correct, yeah. So the uh, the vast majority of uh, air trainers were obviously uh, purchased and uh, put into service for pilot training. Um, a number of aircraft 
Uh, generally, the Air Force, when they get uh, a, a particular type, they'll take one or two and put them uh, into service in the uh, Aircraft Research and Development Unit, ARDU, uh, over at RAF Edinburgh, uh, which is the RAF's flight test squadron. Um, and so a number of CT4s cycled through uh, ARDU uh, during the time that they were in service. Uh, ours actually spent its entire service career um, at ARDU, so it was never used as a, as a primary trainer. Uh, it was only ever flown by test pilots, which, having spoken with most of them, doesn't necessarily sound like a good thing, because um, <laughs> they had a pretty hard life doing what they were doing. Yeah. Um, but as a result, they had you know very low hours, um, the ones that spent time at ARDU, and ours particularly. Uh, it was uh, after nearly 20 years of service, it left the RAF with only 1,300 hours on it. Do you know what kind of flying that they were doing, uh, what sort of uh, testing and research they were doing? Yeah, so ours was uh, used for quite a number of things. It was used for um, the spin and inverted spin testing. Um, so the, uh, particularly during the inverted spin testing, they, uh, they put four different configurations of engine in it. Um, so the same type of engine, but different configurations. Um, my aircraft has a, an inverted oil system, which is the only one of the RAF ones that had an inverted oil system in it. Um, it was used to uh, test different types of uh, cooling baffles in the engine bay. Uh, they're having a lot of issues with overheating um, and actually overcooling um, of some of the cylinders. So they did a lot of testing with engine baffles and those types of things to try and determine what was going on there. Um, they did uh, hot and high testing up at Tyndall. Uh, so they took it up there trying to, uh, you know, get an idea of um, you know the behaviour and characteristics in you know very hot temperatures. Um, uh, including things like uh, fuel uh, fuel flow, they had some issues initially with fuel flow, and mainly it was around the, the types of vents that were that were being used in hot weather. Uh, obviously, they didn't get that sort of weather back home where they were designed and built uh, back in New Zealand. That's right. Um, but uh, yeah, when they brought them over here, they had issues with uh, you know vaporising of fuel and not enough pressure into the into the system. So um, the uh, the raft designed. I think there's there's probably about three three hundred odd mods that the that RG nice. designed for the parrots. Um, uh, so they would have filtered back to the Royal New Zealand Air Force. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well. Um, yeah, not only the, the New Zealand Air Force, but also the uh, the Thai Air Force and the uh, Royal Singapore Flying Club that also operated the the A models and the B models. Uh, it's actually really interesting because I have always just considered the air trainer as being a cold weather aircraft. You know, I was at Wigram. I was based at Wigram where yep. they were for many years and. Um, my memory of them is just seeing them sitting in the frost, or, <laughs> or, you know, and and I, I never really thought about you know the likes of going up to Tyndall where it's like it's actually a really good point there that one of the things about when you're developing an aircraft design is often they're developed for a, a European environment or a North American environment and and you know to a lot of people outside Australia and New Zealand they wouldn't think of the as we just covered the temperature extremes mm. these types were were this type was required to take. Mm. I think for the people who unfortunate people out there who are not familiar with what we love, love to call a parrot here. Um, you, Dave, maybe give a little bit of an introduction to the CT4 for our uh, overseas listeners. Yeah, well, the, uh, the CT4 air trainer was uh, a, it's a two-seat training aircraft, which uh, was developed from a three-seat civil aircraft, oh, no, sorry, four-seat civil seat. aircraft, the uh, Air Cruiser. Right. Uh, the Air Cruiser was developed in itself um, from the Air Tourer, which is a very uh, popular little aircraft that was originally designed in Australia um, and then picked up by uh, New Zealand uh, to, to produce um, in much more uh, numbers and is still being flown around the world in um, 
I think there's, quite, a, I think there's quite an active club with uh, air tourers uh, in the UK. Mm. Yeah, yes, there is, very yeah, much so. Uh, yep. Very active group. There's a very active Victor group in Australia. Yeah, um, yep. yep. and there's there's air tourers all around New Zealand still. And you can see a family resemblance too, but it's a much more developed aircraft. One of the things I find interesting is uh, the original. Uh, air tour, and again, you guys can correct me here. Is uh, was uh, designed by Henry Millissa, um and was a wooden aircraft. Yes, uh, yep. the first example, and a, and a very low-powered version of the, of what was later to come. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is we now have a, a, a military trainer, which is always a bit beefier than uh, a civil equivalent, um, tougher and, and so forth, partly as we're just touching on with the, with the Argy stuff. But for people outside Australia and New Zealand who may be listening, and it's very important to understand that there's an awful lot of friendly rivalry about the CT4 um, across the Tasman between Australia and New Zealand. Both, both of our, my guys are nodding here, um, which is the Kiwis, quite rightly, are very proud of what they did with the aircraft. Um, we, I think it's fair to say we love our, our parrots here, but uh, we're also very aware that there is an Australian origin to the aircraft well, and the, the Kiwis were able to sell it back to us, so we well, reckon they did well there. there. There is, James, but we should remember that Henry Melissa was actually Polish. Indeed. And, and, and in New Zealand, um, the actual designer who... who put together the air trainer design, yep. Pat Monk, he was actually British. So, yep. so it's know, a he, fully he, international he was, thing. Yeah, yeah he yeah. was from Reading in England originally and um, you know, he had moved out to Australia, uh, I think in the 1950s, um, he worked at Woomera on the, um, the rockets and nuclear yep. test site there with the British and uh, did some other things in the Australian industry yep. and in the 1970s, um, actually in 1970, uh, four air tourers entered the RNZF service and they were the air tourer T6 or yep. a military version uh, the air force liked them a lot but they wanted a more robust uh, and a little bit more powerful um, aircraft and wanted something that wasn't a civilian aircraft that was um, militarized, militarized. Yep. they wanted a military spec aircraft from the start yep. and it's it's funny because everyone says oh well the the air trainer came from the air tourer but there, there's the the aircraft in between which was the air cruiser which always gets forgotten yep. which was the, the four-seater but also um, Pat Monk actually told me that he did a lot of redesign work in the wing yep. of the air cruiser to to get to the air trainer and so there was actually it's not just a straight copy and, and put it yep. into production there's a lot of redesign in the wing mm. um, and various other aspects of it and of course you know the military well the the prototype air trainer, which still flies flies today and is based at Ardmore, yep. um, was a three seater. Yep. Um, the military versions were two seaters, and I don't think anyone actually kitted out the third seat on them. Uh, the Thai Air Force did. Oh, they did. Um, okay. Yep. So they, they operate um, a third seat. Um, Mind you, they're smaller than this. Uh, <laughs> well, they need uh, yeah, to be. Ha- yes. Having crawled into the back of the CT4 <laughs> to do work, um, there's no way yeah. I'd crawl in there to sit in there. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, it's, but, it's, uh, it's quite a lot. I mean, for those that are not familiar, there's quite a large sort of floor plan area. You you definitely be able to put two snug seats in there but there's absolutely no headroom is there really no not at all um and uh i've actually been fortunate enough to fly the air cruiser um so it's it's still airworthy and flying um it's uh it's based just near bega in new south wales um lives on a farm strip that is not a strip that you would expect to be able to get something like a ct4 (laughs) in and out of um but uh, when we were living in canberra we used to get our aircraft uh service down at Marimbula, which is just near Bega, and uh, the air cruiser gets its maintenance done at the same place, and we we're fortunate enough to be at the same place at the same, same time. time, and uh, the, uh, the chap that currently owns it was uh, yeah, kind enough to offer me to have a, have a drive of it, um, oh, and it was, uh, it, was, it was very bizarre flying something that was kind of like a CT4, because the engine's exactly the same, it's yeah. exactly the same right. engine configuration. Yeah. Um, 
but everything is, is different. Um, the undercarriage is you know fairly similar, yeah. um, but you know climbing in through a door uh, over the wing like you would in a Piper, um, you know sitting actually quite down low in the cockpit. Um, the cockpit roof line is a lot different to the canopy line on right. the CT4. Um, and you know, had it gone into production, it would have been a very successful aeroplane. It's a, it was a true, like we flew it, um, we had four people in it, it had a fair bit of fuel in it, um, and it flew very well. It actually cruised probably 15 knots faster than the CT4 does at the same power settings, um, simply because the roof line's a lot lower. There's not a lot of drag that's created. Right. I mean, there's a lot of drag that's created by the canopy on the, par on the parrot because yeah. of the way that it sits up quite high. Um, Whereas the roofline on the uh, air cruiser is a lot lower, uh, more streamlined uh, shape to the roofline. Well, that's uh, one of the big um, differences in the air tour and air trainer. Yes. When you see them side by side, uh, and particularly in New Zealand, because we've still got those air tourers flying around yep. uh, in civil hands now, but in military colours, and you see them side by side, and um, the the canopies on the on the air tourers would uh, slide. Yep. And and the air trainers they they hinged up. Yes. And uh, and the and they had the roll bars in them and. Um, yeah, that's that's how on the flight line you could quite easily because they're all the same colour and yep. they, they all look quite similar. But that's how you could tell them apart. Oh, yeah, they are actually a much bigger aeroplane. Um, yeah, in exactly. all respects, you know, the cockpit's wider. Um, uh, there's a lot more room. The uh, you know, obviously the the Air Tourer had a uh, a central control stick um, yep. as opposed to the the two control sticks in that's the CT4. Right, yes. um, so it had a little little spade handle type thing. Um, and uh, I've actually flown a variety of different Air Tourers. We actually have. Uh, I think three or four different types of air tourers on the airfield here, oh, uh, yeah. including a T6, an ex New Zealand Air Force T6. Oh, oh right, there's uh, one based here. On, on the field, yep. You know what's um, really funny? When they left service, um, the, the four of them, they survived all those years from 1970 through to 1993, and they left service and they brought them down to my hangar where I was based, and they got me to rub all the Kiwis off them. Uh, and, and repaint to the, so the rounders weren't on them. Yep. And a week later, I saw uh, in one of the aviation publications someone had bought one and they'd painted the Kiwi straight back on. Yep. <laughs> like, oh, there's Air Force. There's, a, there's Air Force mentality right there. Uh, and they, they did the same, same thing. They here. did the same things with the CT4s here when, when they sold them. The um, uh, the A19 serial prefix on the aircraft, you know, were all removed. Yep. yep. Um, uh, the the Arju flashes on my tail were removed for some reason. Uh, yet uh, another one wasn't. Um, okay. But yeah, the, the A19 serial was removed. And then you know, sort of when they all went into civil hands, you know, a lot of people wanted to you know put them back and look original. Yeah. Um, you know, requested permission off the uh, you know CAA at the time, and, and they said. Yeah, sure thing. No worries at all. So everyone's put all their numbers back on again. So it's probably these very confused Air Force people going, "Didn't we take? Yeah, didn't those we get rid of those?" Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great actually, Dave. I don't think I've ever met anybody who's um, demobbed an aircraft and removed the military colours before. We know it's happened a lot, but there we go. It's a special moment in our trip. Um, I think one of the things I just like to bring in there that, that we're sort of skating over and that we're very familiar with that people might not be is that the. Um, the, the uh, Victor company, which started up the whole process in Australia, uh, got a fair way into having a, a very successful um, general aviation aircraft, but uh, uh, very complicated, complicated but emotive and political situation in Australia meant that the market here was flooded with uh, relatively cheap Cessnas and some Pipers and so on, and, and that really knocked the local product on the head. There was appeals for... Um, uh, protection for the for a local and indigenous design which which didn't come through um, and that, that's easy to sort of uh, overlook it's part of the history it's a bit painful and we, we'd like to move on from that but I think the other thing that we should say at this stage is as effectively a primary or a basic trainer depending on which particular country's military you're talking about 
one of the things that I hadn't really realised is that it's a fully aerobatic, very capable aircraft. It's a good cruiser. We were just mm -hmm. talking about having, uh, yep. Matt, you were saying, four hours fuel. Yeah, four hours of fuel. Um, uh, because it was designed as a four-seat aeroplane, uh, you can actually put a fair load in the back of it. Yep, you know, there's yep. quite a lot of room in the uh, in the what is basically an instrument bay in the back of the aeroplane. There's a lot of room in there um, with you know two big blokes full of fuel. You can put about sort of you know 70 kilos worth of uh, stuff in the back. So uh, as a as a private operator, yep. yeah, it's a it's a great you know touring aeroplane. Yep. Um, uh, yeah, it's obviously fully aerobatic, designed um, you know to meet all the requirements which of military training. Um, which a lot of uh, basic or in introduction type trainers these days in air forces are not. I'm thinking of the um, US Air Force uh, Cessna yep. um, 172, they've got a different designation for it, of course, because yep. why make it simple? Uh, everybody <laughs> knows what a Cessna 172 is except the US Air Force. Yep. Um, and uh, those obviously are not aerobatic at yep. all, um, and you're, you're learning your basic flying. But the first thing you step into in the, the RNZAF or the RAAF um, in, the, in the good old days was, a, was an aircraft you'd follow a lot of your training through until you really moved yep. on to the next stage. Yep. And that must have been good for training. Another thing with the aerobatic capability of the air trainer is uh, for from right at the end of the well just after the war about 1948 I think it was through till um, when the air trainers came in we had the Harvard uh, team which was doing our aerobatics yep. um, for for pub publicity yep, and yep, air shows yep, and stuff yep. you know and the Harvards have been around since World War Two um, and when when they were phased out I think it was the last uh, last aerobatic display by the Harvards was probably 1977. Um, just from memory, yep, yep. and when they were phased out and they started phasing in the air trainers, everyone looked at them and said, "Oh well, that's that's the red check is gone. You know, we we won't be able to do that." <laughs> yep. And it wasn't until 1981 when the air force had we'd gone through that whole uh, fuel crisis and all that, and and, right. and then suddenly they they had a bit of prosperity and they said, "Oh, let's put together a big air show." And some of the guys that were at um, Central Flying School said, yep. "Well, we could probably do it, some sort of team aerobatics with this." and bring back the red checkers and the people who did that were um, Frank Sharp who went on to um, command 75 Squadron, yep. Yep. Uh, New Zealand 75 Squadron I should course, say because yep. I know there's one over here as well yep. uh, and John Bates who also went on to command 75 Squadron and um, Frank Parker who, oh, yeah. who now commands I should say uh, is president of um, New Zealand Warbirds yep. and uh, one other pilot whose name escapes me because I'm not in front of my computer I'm sorry about that um, but those four guys um, worked up a routine and brought back the red checkers and the red checkers carried on through until about a year ago when uh, we finally, finally phased out the last of the um, air trainer line because we should also say that New Zealand's had two two different uh, lives for the air trainer. Mm -hmm. We had the CD4B. Now the, the Australia got the A's. They got in first on the production. Um, we got the B's, which were slightly different. What was the what were the differences? Uh, so the, the B was a civil certified aircraft. Um, so the A model was uh, 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 in Australia and New Zealand, most other countries, a, a pure military spec aeroplane. Right. So uh, our aircraft over here operate in uh, what we call limited category, which is uh, designed for ex-military aeroplanes that didn't have a civil certification um, or a civil type certificate. Uh, the B model that was operated by um, both the New Zealand Air Force, uh, British Aerospace at Tamworth um, that took over flight training from the RAF when the RAF contracted it out, uh, and the Royal Thai Air Force, which is still operating the B model, um, they're a, a civil certified aeroplane. So, uh, you know, if you want to, want to buy one of them, there's no restrictions on flying them. It's like owning a, a 172 or 
or a, or a warrior uh, from right. that perspective. Right. So, so they've got things like uh, you know audible stall warning indicators and, and other components and mods that are that are different to the A model um, to have them uh, that were recommended for civil certification. Um, there's a, a spring aileron rudder interconnect built into them, uh, similar to Bonanza's and other uh -huh. aircraft. Yeah. You know, kind of an anti-spin device, yeah. um, which actually gives them quite horrible handling because um, <laughs> yes. the A model actually is a beautiful handling aeroplane. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's very uh, you know very constant feel on the aileron and, and elevator. It, it's um, it doesn't load up on all the other when you get speed and those types of things. Um, and uh, I think it surprises a lot of people who have never flown them. Um, you know they. You know, the, the old military guys who have been around big metal, <coughs> you know, look at the Parrot and, you know, I guess when the instructors did at the time, you know, thought it was a bit of a toy. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's actually quite a nice handling aeroplane. Right. Actually, actually, yeah, that's a really good point, just to jump in and pick up what Dave was saying uh, and Matt there, that um, uh, it's one, uh, probably a very underappreciated aeroplane mm. because it is, it, uh, everything I've ever heard is that people who fly them really like them. Those that come back to them appreciate them again, perhaps more than they would have in their early flying career. Uh, as we were just touching on, it's fully aerobatic, it's got good got, got got good long legs for, for flying long distances and so on. Um, and it's actually, for what it is, a relatively comfortable air. I mean, it is a military aeroplane. It's not as comfortable as a civilian aircraft, but it is relatively comfortable. And, and um, what Dave was just saying about the reaction when the, when the CT4s came in in New Zealand is very similar to we, what we had here, but perhaps worth illustrating the similarities and differences, something I find fascinating in aviation history, which is we didn't have T6s. We have, we have Harvards, rather. Um, we had Wurraways here. We, we never operated the Harvard in, in Australia or any great numbers with the Royal Australian Air Force. So, yes, we, we carried on with our We started off, you start on your Tiger, you go on to the Wurraway, and then eventually we brought in the, um, the, the Windjill, CAC Windjill, uh, very similar to the uh, Piston Provost, to the, to the, the, uh, the British listener. Um, very, very popular aeroplane, big, beefy, kind of fixed, fixed undercarriage, Harvard-type thing. Um, that was replaced by the CT4, and, and one of the reasons it is the Parrot, and this is a story we, we always seem to be telling, because uh, it's a good one, is that everybody looked at it in its, in its uh, uh, delivery scheme of, of yellow and, and green, very patriotic for Australia today, of course, and they said, well, well that's, just a, you know, that's just a little Parrot, and it's a tinny aeroplane compared to the big old beasts we're used to operating. Um, but I think most people who've flown um, the... Uh, um, were away uh, and the CT4 would say the CT4 is a much nicer handling, much better aerobatic aircraft and I think from what you've told me Matt and other people I've talked to it's a very honest flying aeroplane and what you just said about that rudder interconnect on the, on the bees it's real hands-on stick and rudder stuff it's a relatively modern aeroplane in the things we're looking at but it's traditional in that sense Yeah, it's, um, it's designed to be what a trainer is so it's, it's relatively easy to fly um, yeah. But like most trainers, it's you kind of get to a point where you can master the basics of flying. Yeah. But um, you know, you can fly with anyone in any of these old military trainers that are you know designed to weed people out. Ultimately, yeah. you know, to get them to a point where yes, they can function safely. But then uh, you know, really, you can really identify the people who fly well yeah. uh, by how well they can fly. You know, these types of trainers. Um, it's got you know, for those who have seen a CT4, it has almost no wing. Um, is one of the things wing. that we joke about it's, a, it's got a very small wing uh, it's got a very high wing loading it's got um, it's actually quite very jet like characteristics in its, yeah. in its flying um, so very high wing loading um, you know uh, glides like an iron um, <laughs> uh, these types of things so it, it was designed you know I guess Transitioning onto the Mackie, which you know yeah. happened here and in New Zealand. Well, the, um, uh, the Strike Master first. Oh, Strike Master, we yeah. Went, yeah, it was um, basically from from its initial service through to uh, 1990. 
192 yep. um, was the Strike Master yeah. was, the, was the next progression, and then the Air Mackie 339B. Yeah, so CV. it's um, you know, so uh, the you know the transition from a very high wing loading aeroplane with you mm. know fairly similar sort of characteristics to the jet that you're then going to get operate. At least you've got some concept of what's going to happen. You know, if you went from a, a Cessna that's got a big wing, yeah. um, you know, very docile handling, um, you know, very tolerant of you know bad flying. Um, you know, if you went from something like that into a, into a jet, um, you'd have a, a much bigger gap to fill. Um, There's even a, a little riff on that, which is that if you fly um, formation with uh, with the CT4, which I've, I've been able to sit passenger when Matt's been doing, uh, and also someone flying with Matt, someone else flying with Matt, because of that little wing, you are really, really close to each other. And if you're an Air Force trainee, um, that kind of uh, initial experience where you are able to read handwritten notes between cockpits, yep. <laughs> as has been demonstrated not by me I hasten to add but uh, I understand um, then uh, you, you've got a very good idea of good Air Force uh, approach and discipline even in the early stage of your career that, and that's one of the things that um, really stood out about the Red Checkers team mm. because uh, they, they were little aircraft they're not very grunty to the to the crowd yep. in, in no the big show, noise. but yeah. they really kept in tight together yeah. and, yep. and yep. they did the mirror formation which not many teams in the world have, have been yep. doing in yeah. the last yeah. How many well, to do, a, to do a mirror in a CT4 is a little interesting because you don't spend a lot of time upside down, do you, Matt? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's um, it's actually quite interesting because there's quite a dihedral on the CT4 wing, so um, to actually maintain uh, an inverted attitude actually requires a fair you know fair amount of forward stick. Yeah. Um, yep. It's actually quite a pronounced attitude to be inverted, um, whereas a lot of aircraft that have got, you know, like a Yak-52 or something yeah. like that, which has effectively got a symmetrical wing, yeah. um, you know, flying inverteds, you know, you don't require the same sort of stick forces that you do in the CT4. It requires a fair amount of forward stick to maintain an inverted attitude. So it would, you know, be pretty hard work for the guy that and, was... And there's a thing up. about the engine running upside down for a period of time, is there not? Ah, uh, yeah, so the, uh, you know, so the A models that didn't have the inverted uh, oil system yeah. in Australia, um, they were good for, you know, probably about five seconds before uh, you'd start getting low oil pressure and those types of things. Uh, and then you've also got a limited fuel... Um, um, so uh, they don't have an inverted fuel system as such. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a header tank which sits underneath the pilot seat. Yep. Um, that's good for about sort of 45 seconds worth of fuel um, because the, the fuel tanks aren't pressurised enough to keep yep. pumping fuel in. Yeah. Um, so yeah, if you were to fly continuously upside down, um, yeah. you'll get about 45 seconds before it all stops and roll up right and off she goes again. Does that the same in the B model that we were using? I believe so, yeah. Okay. yeah. So and they, were doing, they were doing even better than you thought there, yeah. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... Hey, I, I used to watch their practices uh, at lunchtime. You know, yep. the Red Checkers is an interesting team. They're not um, well. They they now no longer exist anymore. The, yep. the team is going to change with the, the new um, again T six. Yep. New T. How many T sixes do we need? But, yes, um, the new T six Texans. Are we um, keeping up with our T sixes? The T six three in New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> uh, and uh, but they're, they're changing. Um, but the. They were they were an interesting team, and in that they did everything in their spare time. Yep. Um, their air shows they never got extra pay for. They never got um, any extra time for their yep. practices, so they practiced in their lunchtime. Yep. And there was this one particular lunchtime that I know that they seemed to look particularly close. And um, when they came back, there was a scratch on the tip of one tail and the canopy of another. <laughs> um, you know, so. Yeah, that's a little bit uncomfortable getting that close. But um, with the red checkers too. Uh, and the, the RNZAF in the mid 1990s, the the whole fleet of CD4Bs were withdrawn, and a, and a new fleet of brand new CD4Es were brought in. Yep. And the CD4E was interesting in that it uh, 
they had a, a little bit more grunt in the engine. Um, and the, had a lot more grunt in the engine. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and which made it much much better for the for the uh, aerobatic display team. Yep. And uh, they also had a, a change in the wing design. They yeah. moved the wing backwards with it. Uh, moved it forward. forward, forward um, yeah. It was about I think it was about two and a half inches. It was mm. moved forward, and that was mainly to counteract the CFG change because the 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 Lycoming IO540 that they put in, which was a 300 horsepower engine compared to the 210 horsepower of the Continental, which is and a the, big difference. Yes, a very big difference. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, to address CFG issues, they actually moved the entire wing forward uh, about two and a half inches. Uh, that did a couple of things. Um, uh, it, it made the, the steering the steering on the ground in a Parrot's, you know, quite challenging at the best of time because it's a very short coupled landing gear. Um, and the E-models are, are even more challenging when it comes to that, you know, very stiff on the, on the ground uh, in terms of steering. Um, but it also changed a bit of the attitude of the aircraft in flight. Um, you know, the A-models and B-models are probably fairly similar. They, they kind of fly around you know, kind of dragging their bum, they're not quite up where the yeah. airframe should be sitting. Um, they're very comfortable um, when you fly them around, you kind of get used to them. About 140 knots, 150 knots is where the airframe feels where it should be um, uh, in terms of, you know, the aerodynamics of the whole aircraft itself. And the the E's fly around, you know, sort of cruising about 155, 160 knots. Um, and, and they just sit up properly. Um, you know, they don't, feel like, they don't look and feel like they're dragging their bum around. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, to be able to fly around at your aerobatic speed, um, you know, the CT4 A and B when you're doing aerobatics, there's a lot of, you know, diving down to get the speed needed to do the aerobatic manoeuvres that you need. And, of course, a lot of climbing, which, uh, yeah. you know, in a routine, even with a team, the, the red checkers usually had five, sometimes six. Yep. Um, but... You'd still have big patches of nothing because yep. they're trying to get trying to get height, height to yep. get yeah. Some, yeah. <coughs> yeah. Um, um. But actually, you're talking about the aerodynamics, and something that just came to mind is uh, uh, when they were doing the development of the aircraft, and as you said, the canopy's quite different and yep. various things. Um, I, I remember Pat Monk saying that he wanted to do some um, wind testing, and of course, they didn't really have the facilities in Hamilton to do this sort of thing. Yep. Wind tunnel, you mean? Wind tunnel Sorry, type yeah, testing, yeah. 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 But, uh, and uh, you know, Hamilton's a, 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 just a country airport, really. It wasn't wasn't international back then, and it's not even now. It was international for a while, but they took away our airlines. So, <laughs> but, um, but the, you know, it, it's a, it's almost like a blokes and sheds kind of story yep. how they put this thing together. It's, they weren't a proper aircraft industry type thing. Right. And so what what they did to do this testing, Pat said they tied the um, prototype DGY behind a Hercules. And uh, got got the got the Hercules pilot to run his engines up to full speed and and, and just to test the the flutter and all that sort of thing. And there's actually a, I, I I didn't believe the story. I kind of believed it because Pat didn't really lie. But yep. I, I asked about this on the Wings Over New Zealand forum, and sure enough, someone found a photo of it. So terrific, but fantastic. It's a very similar story uh, and picture uh, of uh, Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation doing the same sort of testing with the jettisoning of the canopy on the windshield. Right. Um, and there's a, a picture of a windshield parked on the ramp, tied down a big net behind it to catch the canopy and I can't remember what aircraft it was but it was a big, big piston airfield, aircraft yeah. sitting in front of it um, same Provi- thing going at full wall, wow. providing the wind actually um, I think that I think you're right I think they were, they were doing the jet canopy jettison yep. um, for that as well yep. for, for the air trainer yep. well you want to get that right I mean for people not familiar with aviation one of the nasties about if you have to get out of an aeroplane in a hurry um, it's very easy to uh, to hit someone on the head uh, easily, hard enough to knock them out or, yep. or seriously injure them or kill them. Yep. Um, canopy jettison was a was a kind of a, shall we say an imprecise science right into World War Two, and it got very very interesting. Mm. Um, there's some horror stories which we won't go into here, mm. but uh, in terms of aircraft, people getting out of aircraft, so they take that a lot more seriously now. 
And occasionally you can lose your canopy as you're trundling along, can't you? I don't know. You could, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the canopy on the CT4 is, is able to be jettisoned. Yep. Um, you know, the, when the Air Force um, operated them here, uh, you know, they wore parachutes and, yep. and all that sort of good gear when they were flying them here. I um, used to pack the parachutes for the, the okay. Air Force. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the RAF... Uh, never jettisoned one in flight. Um, one of the things that they did do at Arju was actually flight test the aircraft without the canopy on to actually get a, an understanding of you know impact on glide speed and you know what Buffet. best what best speed to fly right. at um, with the canopy off. So you know uh, would be interesting to see you know these days we'd have you know lots of video of that sort of yeah, thing happening, yeah. but you know uh, there's only a, a written flight test report down at yeah. the uh, at the RAF museum about them doing it. But uh, it would have been quite interesting yeah, to pull off the canopy and you know fly around this convertible CT4. I was going to say the, so. the coupe version it would be. Yeah. Very, apparently, very it actually doesn't change much of the handling at all. Um, well, that's the, best, a <laughs> the best speed to get around it apparently was about sort of 85 knots. Did they um, get a lot of buffet? Did the notes say? Um, no, because most of the, um, because of the shape of the canopy, yeah. um, particularly the windscreen, which has kind of got a, a very curved shape yeah. to it, um, and because the, the back of the canopy is so far away, there would have been a fair bit of buffet in the back of the cockpit, yeah. I suspect, but not in the pilot seat. Um, that's actually just to jump very sideways there. I was lucky enough to have a flight in a, a Miles Magister in the UK many years ago now. Um, and uh, anyone who looks at a Magister will see a very straight sort of A-frame type windscreen in the front cockpit, yep. and a huge piece of plastic for the back cockpit. And that's simply because the front cockpit doesn't get much buffet at all, but the, the occupant in the front cockpit will always make the guy in the back get a lot of turbulent air. Yep. And they tried to fix that. So it really would have been a bit of an open cockpit error. You should try that, Matt. I think it's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy having read the report. <laughs> and that it is possible if required, but uh, uh, yeah, there won't be any chance of us jettisoning the canopy, I don't think. They, they cost too much. So. Yeah, and that's, a, that's actually a good point to jump sideways on there, perhaps, is that um, there's a world of difference between you know being an Air Force, young Air Force uh, trainee or, or an experienced instructor and walking out in the morning to a flight line, you know, you're taking number 45 or 46 or whatever, and off you go, and then at the end of the day, you put it, you, you, you hand over the keys metaphorically and, and someone else looks after it, to operating your own ex-military aircraft. Um, obviously, you fly it very conscious it's yours and anything you do you have to uh, to deal with um, and uh, I know that sometimes you know you get an ex-military pilot in one of these and it's kind of well whoa, whoa, slow down we don't have an entire air force supply line to look after this anymore um, but what sort of challenges do you think uh, you'd, you'd sort of bring to, re to listeners attention attention here um, I think the uh, I mean the challenge with any um, I guess older airplane uh, and ex-military airplanes in general is that, that, that you know there generally wasn't a lot of them. Yeah. Um, you know the CT4s. I think there was a total of about 209 built um, uh, of the various different versions. Yeah. Um, the you know the RAF operated 50 of them. Um, you know they were built by you know um, basically guys in a shed in, in New yeah. Zealand, yeah. Um, which is pretty obvious when you try and exchange parts from one to another. Uh, they right. don't fit. <laughs> Um, you know, there was there was no uh, there was no real production line. It was everything was handmade and right. hand built. Um, so getting parts, you know, even though Pacific Aerospace still exists, and uh, you know, if you were to ring up them and say, "Hey, can you make me a CT4?" They would. Uh, yeah. It would be extraordinarily expensive, but you could go and get one. Um, and the parts are the same. You know, so right. most of the parts between the the A, B, and E are fairly similar. All yeah. the airframe components are very similar uh, and still basically the same things. Canopy, all of those types of bits are the same. Um, so the things that are likely to cause you, I guess, the wear and tear components, which yeah. are the engine, uh, the engine's a standard Continental engine, yeah. um, so getting parts for that is, is fairly easy. Um, uh, odd things like brakes, um, yeah. you know, the, the brakes on the on the A model uh, were a, a Dunlop 
right. uh, brake and uh, caliper set, which uh, don't exist anymore right. anywhere. Um, so we're fortunate that you know when the RAF sold off theirs, uh, a lot of people went to the auction to buy all of the spare parts, and yep. you know they're sort of lying in sheds and um, uh, containers around the countryside, and we know where most of them are. Right. So. Um, yeah, mainly getting parts is kind of the challenge. Um, servicing them is fairly easy because you've got more information than you could possibly hope for. Um, because Much more than a civil aircraft. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, the manuals, you know, for the CT4 maintenance, you know, stack about as high as me, which is about <laughs> six foot and a bit. Um, uh, and, you know, that's that's one of the, the beauties of owning these aeroplanes yeah. is, is anything that could have happened to it, the air forces that were operating them would have discovered it and figured a way to fix it or improve it or um, you know come up with a way to mod things or that type of thing. So um, uh, you know we're, we're very fortunate in that uh, you know we ourselves we do a lot of flying with the with the air force museum yep. um, and uh, the guys that. Uh, uh, you know, do the I guess on the tech side of the house down yeah. there. Um, you know, Dave Jones particularly has got you know, you know probably 30 years' experience working on parrots. Um, yeah. uh, so generally, it's, you know, if I need something, I'll just ring him up and say, "Wait, Jonesy, what's this?" And you know, <laughs> off the top of his head, he will tell me. It's kind um, of I've seen this in action, and, yeah. and I think perhaps we should drag in uh, a little bit here that the um, the Royal Australian Air Force Museum at Point Cook, which is another will be another podcast. Um, they uh, they operate. I suppose it's really the last operating um, uh, Air Force. Uh, CT4 in Australia. Oh, um, probably in Australasia because we don't. Have Aust- and Aust- yeah, indeed. Yeah. I hadn't realised that's where you're up to with the red checkers, which is which yep. is obviously sad. But um, and uh, so that's a that's a straight Air Force aircraft operated by the Air Force Museum. Um, they do aerobatic displays with it, and um, nowadays are, are part of a, a much bigger thing, which which Matt will talk about in a moment. But one of the other things I'd never thought about until we're talking now is that you've actually got all of that documentation, all of that, uh, but you've also got a lot of heritage here. We mm. we, we all know. An and the same would apply in New Zealand. Lots of people who've spent a lot of time flying uh, CT4s, generally, as we said earlier, really like the aeroplane um, and uh, very keen to share that knowledge and experience. And, and um, so it's in a, being in a very rich environment, a real contrast to a lot of earlier warbirds where, you know, World War I stuff, there is no one around who flew them in, in, in actual anger. Yep. Um, a whole different world. I've got a question for you. Um, do, you know what, do you know anything about the uh, CT4C? Uh, I do. Um, so there was a few developments of the CT4 um, uh, that include a, a, a turbine version, so a turboprop version that, that operated a, an Allison 250 engine. Mm. Um, and uh, Dave Pilkington, who's a, yep. um, uh, an Australian uh, pilot, um, is uh, very involved with the aerobatic, uh, Australian Aerobatic Club, um, does a lot of instructing, also does a lot of flight testing. Uh, he was actually involved in the flight testing right. of the um, uh, turbine CT4. It was actually yeah. a certified aeroplane, um, which, yeah. you know, in the future of no avgas means that, you know, I can go and chuck a Allison 250 in the front of the Parrot and off we go. Always um, a comfort, always a comfort. <laughs> do, do you know where that aircraft come from? came from? Uh, it was an Australian aeroplane. No. Uh, no, no, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. Okay. It, it was uh, NZ 1940. Um, of the RNZF and it had a crash okay. and it was going to be rebuilt uh, a reasonable crash yep. it was going to be rebuilt by PAC and PAC said well we're actually going to build a prototype okay. for the C4C can we use that airframe ah. and then and then we'll, afterwards we'll convert it back and put it back in service okay. that's what happened because ah, so I know the um, the prototype E-model uh, was an ex-RAF aeroplane yeah, um, that was pranged and, and yeah. sent back there um, so it's actually still flying today um, it went through being an E-model became an F-model um, 
That's the one with the glass cockpit, isn't it? Uh, it, it had a glass cockpit, so it was it was leased from Pacific Aerospace by Raytheon mm. um, when uh, Raytheon were sort of putting together a proposal for Australia's new flight training um, scheme. So they were going to have uh, a, a an F model CT4, which is a full glass cockpit, um, uh, the same 300 horsepower engine. Um, and essentially the same uh, avionics and instrumentation that was in the, the T6 that New Zealand's now operating. Yep. Right, um, right. But Raytheon were pitching to Australia to have a you know a high-powered CT4 going into the T6 because um, that's kind of the traditional way that you know RAF's always done training is to have something basic going into something you know more complex. Um, although that's just recently changed. You know, of course, we're, yes. we're going straight onto PC21s now um, in the future pilot training scheme. But so that aircraft was um, it was leased by Raytheon. Um, Raytheon did a whole bunch of work to to mod it. Um, Gave it a very fluid, snazzy black, fluid, uh, black scheme. A very, very dark blue scheme. Dark blue? Oh, there we go, yes. <coughs> um, yeah. Flew it around for a few years. Um, you know, all of the air shows. I uh, was at Avalon, was at Edinburgh. Sort of, it was flying around sort of 2006, 2007, 2008. Um, uh, when it became obvious that, you know, Defence were continuing to drag its feet with the new pilot training scheme, uh, Raytheon basically just pulled out the plug and said, we can't keep spending money on this thing. So uh, gave it back to Pacific Aerospace, pulled all of their kit out of it. Um, and then Pacific Aerospace has got this, you know, basically stripped out the model aeroplane fl floating around. So uh, it was sold to a, a guy down in Geelong, um, uh, converted basically back to an E-model. Um, so it doesn't have the glass cockpit, but yeah. it's more it's got the standard um, steam dials of the uh, of the E-model. Um, and uh, it lives down at Lethbridge, um, down near Geelong, uh, and the chap that owns it flies it around fairly regularly. So it's okay. uh, it's still around, kicking around. Cool. Um, and a, a, another um, little chapter in, in that kind of... Uh, trying to sell the aircraft to people. DGY, the um, original prototype, yep. got, I think, leased or rented or whatever back by Pacific Aerospace at one stage, and they did it up in this nice red, white, and blue scheme to uh, try and sell the aircraft to the US Air Force. Okay. Uh, I think that was late 90s, because yep. they had some sort of scheme going on. And, you know, it's, it's funny. It's funny how these things happen and then they just disappear again. Yep, that's and interesting. It'd be interesting to check, and, and we might have a look. But because uh, the, the um, US Air Force ended up buying a British aircraft, I might have been on the same or they're about that time of the F Slingsby Firefly, um, yes. and that yes, turned out to be a, a real debacle mm. um, in a lot of complex way. I, I don't know enough or recall enough about it specifically. But and that's actually the thing is the the, the CT4 is very much an Australasian success story. An aircraft where very both sides of the Tasman. There's an awful lot of jokes chucked back and forth but we're on both sides I think very proud and very pleased to have them very pop they'll be CD4s flying for a long time but not a lot elsewhere I, I don't think but oh, we know, I know you've seen a couple in uh, in North America Matt yeah when the uh, RAF auctioned theirs off in in 93 there were there were three that were uh, purchased um, boxed up and sent across to the US right. um, from the records that we've been able to find uh, only one of them actually ever flew um, right. so t two of them are still uh, in the ownership of uh, a chap in Eugene in Oregon um, and uh, they're on the register but yeah, they've, they've never been seen um, or heard of. Yep. Uh, the, the third aircraft uh, went to Florida yep. um, and was flying around there uh, for quite a few years. It was sold about six years ago to um, a, uh, a chap in uh, lives in South Carolina right. um, and we were fortunate enough to meet up with him uh, a few months ago when we were in uh, uh, North Carolina which is uh, where my one of my work lo locations is and um, yeah he actually got to go and see the aeroplane and spend a, a whole day with him having a chat about it because you know it's very very different to go and go to the US 
um, you know, down south and see a CT4. Yes. Um, it's very out of place. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, for those who are not in Australasia, they're a very common sight, I think, in, around the airfields these days, certainly in New Zealand. The whole, uh, if we're including the whole family here, of course. Um, but yeah, the very odd look, very odd appearing to see one in, in America. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, Oscar that owns it um, had never met or spoken with anybody before that knew anything about CT4, so um, he it was... must have been a revelation for him. Uh, it kind of was. <laughs> we, um, we spent a lot of time... Um, uh, you know, just just kind of exchanging knowledge. Yeah. Um, you know, so one of those things that you know, as I mentioned before, we do all of the time because you know we'll ring people up and say, "Hey, you're having an issue with this, or have yeah. you seen this before?" Um, you know, he didn't have anyone to do that with. So, um, uh, so you know, we kind of spent you know a couple of hours just wandering around, and you know, you know, from the time that I've had with our aeroplane and and with other people's that yeah. we work with, um, you know, just kind of pointing stuff out, say, so, oh, you need to keep an eye on this, or, you know, that needs to be like this, or, you yeah. know, that's that's the pressure you need in that, all of these, you know, bits and pieces that we've all sort of come to know over the years. It's yeah. a real, it's an interesting knowledge base. It's something that with history we find very hard to uh, capture and be aware of, and, and one of the things we lose when we preserve things uh, statically or, or into museums in a, in, a, in a storage situation or whatever, then you, that kind of knowledge that is usually passed on, even if it's documented, like we just talked about uh, Air Force paperwork and so on. Um, that's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so, Matt, how many of the um, ex-Royal Australian Air Force examples are still flying uh, in civil hands now in Australia? Not the not the ones with the BAE school, but yep. <coughs> uh, so there's about 30, um, 30 odd that um, that are in civil hands uh, and operating in Australia. Um, uh, ironically, uh, some of those actually about three or four years ago ended up with British Aerospace and are now training pilots again. Um, British Aerospace uh, had an initial tranche of um, uh, 12 CT4s that they had bought from the New Zealand Air Force when they got rid of theirs, um, and then they had another 12 built brand new. Um, The aircraft that they they purchased from the New Zealand Air Force um, about three or four years ago started to get towards their 14,000 hour spar life, and uh, one of the things that British Aerospace were looking at was, you know, what's the cost difference between re-winging an existing CT4 versus buying an old A model that's got, you know, 10,000 hours left on the wing, um, modding it to a B model and then going and flying it. So it was obviously cheaper to do that. So they ended up buying, I think, three or four uh, of the XRAF aircraft um, that were in private hands, um, modding them up to B model standard, and they're back flying again, training RAF pilots 40-something years later. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And there's also another group of uh, CT4s. We were just talking earlier, uh, Dave and I, about, you know, where the CT4s. There's another group of CT4s that are not very active but uh, are still used, I think, at uh, at Wagga? Ah, yes, there are. Um, So the Air Force still own, um, uh, I think it's eight aircraft that are based at RAF Wagga, and they're used for the... uh, They don't fly at all. Uh, They're used for training... um, tech students, uh, Air Force tech students in marshalling of aircraft um, yep. and uh, the reason that they still use aeroplanes for that and not just rely on simulators is uh, is that it's uh, as I've understood from the guys that I've spoken to up there that instruct uh, in this particular thing is that um, you know that the, the, the having a spinning propeller next to you is is very different in real life than being in a simulator. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they do have these marshalling simulators that they use, but um, yeah, nothing's quite the same as standing next to an aeroplane with a turning propeller. Uh, and you know, with the Air Force still operating PC9s and Orions and Hercules and you know a lot of aircraft that have propellers, um, you know, you want to I guess get an understanding fairly quickly if a if a trainee is is going to have an issue with standing next to an actual live spinning propeller. Um, 
when they're in training, not when they're you know promoted and posted out to an airfield somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yep. um, so those aircraft are all still there. They're still owned by the RAF. Um, we actually dragged them all out a few years ago uh, when we were uh, up at Wagga to do a, a big photo shoot of, uh, I think we, we had five or six that flew in uh, and dragged all of the uh, School of Technical Training aircraft out and did a big photo of them all lined up on the flight line, uh, which I think was the first time that, um, yeah, probably since 93 that that many had been together before. Right. Oh, cool. Now, um, I'm also aware that there's at least one ex-Australian one in uh, New Zealand flying in civil Yes, there is, yeah. Garth Hogan. Um, um, there is, and I believe there was another one that yeah. was in New Zealand and now in, is in Hobart. Um, ah, right, okay. So yep. it, was, it was operating in New Zealand. Um, it was uh, refurbished, uh, I believe, by Pacific Aerospace uh, and put, put back into uh, original colours and all the rest of it um, and uh, was then ferried back to Australia um, and uh, is operating doing uh, flight training uh, down in uh, Hobart in Tasmania. Oh, right, right. Um, so they're doing um, yeah, adventure flights with it and those types of things as well as doing instruction. So it was converted to a B model, um, so it's a civil certification um, for that one. Uh, and yeah, they use it for, for flight testing and those types of things. Uh, they're actually also using it for, um, as a number of operators are, uh, as a kind of a, an initial experience for people who are wanting to join the Air Force uh, who then go up to Tamworth and do a, a two-week kind of boot camp uh, yep. where they get to fly the CT4 um, as part of a flight screening program. Um, so a lot, of, uh, a lot of people kind of seek out um, CT4 operators to you know, have a ride, um, get an idea of what it, what it looks like, smells like, feels like to go for a ride in a CT4 before they then go up to Tamworth. Um, so I've done, I don't know, probably a couple of dozen rides wow. um, for, uh, for, you know, potential students um, for the Air Force, just just so that they've had some experience in a CT4, because um, it is a very noisy environment. Um, it's pretty uncomfortable if you've never been in, you know, most of the kids that I've taken flying have never been in an aeroplane before. Um, so if they've had at least had that exposure to the environment, um, you know, at least when they get up there, you know, the first time that they've been in one of these things isn't when they've got an instructor sitting next to them trying to teach them a whole bunch of stuff while they're trying to come to grips with you know a whole sensation that's new to them. Yeah. Um, that's actually a really good point and, and um, something that perhaps most of the listeners will take for granted because I think most of our listeners are probably heavily involved in aviation but for a lot of people today, particularly young people, you know, teenagers and so on, they might join cadets or be in, in some sort of screening process and it's, it's great these things are going as well as they are uh, uh, around, the, around the world in, and I know in New Zealand and Australia I see some great stuff going past. But they're never put in an environment which is so real, in, yep. in a way. Uh, you know, if you don't fly this thing, it will fall out of the sky and it will be bad. Yep. Um, and, uh, you, you know, your hands are on the stick and throttle and those things, those controls are directly linked to what is going to happen. It's not a, again, something we make a bit, a lot of fuss about virtual realities and working on the, you know, life on the internet. It's terrific. We have access to that, but it's all virtual. It's not direct press button, something really real happens. And it must be quite confronting in some ways for some of the young people. Have, have, have any of them, have they reacted? I mean, have you get good reactions, bad reactions? Obviously exciting. Yeah, I, I think for most people it is exciting, um, yeah. uh, you know, because it is, it is very different. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's, if you've never been flying before, you know, going for a flying a light airplane, you know, the, the CT4 uh, and those types that have got, you know, uh, a full bubble canopy where you've got you know magnificent visibility terrific um uh you know the aircraft's quite responsive uh cerebatic so you can go and do a lot of things that a lot of people wouldn't have experienced before and yeah. get you know get a you know a big sensory overload of what's actually happening sure, at the time yeah. so um yeah for most of them it's uh 
you know, it, it is very different to the world of uh, you know what they're used to, which is you know playing computer games and those yeah. types of things, yeah. uh, which will probably serve them well when they actually actually become a you know a fighter pilot and are playing, yeah. playing with computers. Um, but you know, fundamentally, you still need to be a hands and feet pilot. You yeah. still need to have to fly an aeroplane. Um, and for most people, I think what they find is that. You know the fundamentals of flying are actually quite easy. Um, yeah. You know, uh, you know, flying an aircraft around in the sky and you know making go go left and go right and go up and quite go yeah. down. Um, to actually, you know, for people to experience that, you know, that the sensation is is quite quite good to see. And it's one thing I love about the CT4 is that you've got them sitting next to you yeah. and you can experience that while they're doing yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you know, other types where you've got you know a poor passenger sitting in the back and you've got no idea how yeah. they're feeling, what yeah. they're thinking. And they're um, isolated too. I mean, one of the things correct. I know flying side by side as against tandem is that uh, I think on balance it's much more comforting because you're getting much the other thing as a passenger is you're in, you're aware there's a control input coming yep. whereas if you're sitting in a separate cockpit you, you often are surprised the aeroplane's still on its ear or whatever yep. most of the people <laughs> I've flown with have not been bad about that but it's very easy to be ahead of the poor passenger yeah it's um and I think because you're sort of sitting side by side it's it's easy to have a, a conversational yes. type activity going on in the cockpit where yeah, if you're sitting in the back you're not sure when's a good time to talk to the yeah. pilot or, or whatever, so you tend to get a lot of silence from the back seat. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, like the, the bird dogs are saying, um, yeah. you know, uh, it's kind of a lot of silence and kind of looking around wondering what's going on down the back. <laughs> um, Have they gone to sleep? Are, they, yeah. are their eyes rolled up <laughs> yeah. in their heads? Are they clenching on tightly to yeah. something? Um, whereas in the CT4, because they're sitting next to you and they can see what's happening with your hands and with your feet and what's going on with the controls and stuff, they, they feel like they're involved in yeah, the activity. Yeah, very much um, so. And, uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I, I enjoy about taking people ride for rides yeah, is, yeah. you know, I can see their, you know, what they're going through in the aeroplane at the time, um, good or bad. And, um, and that allows <laughs> you to tailor what you're doing. I mean, if they're having, if it's not going well, then you can scale back. If they're loving it and want more, you can, you can add more into what Correct. you're doing. Yeah. Um, but just on that point of uh, you taking up younger people or inexperienced people and giving them that first experience, um, what's, what was your background? How did you get into mm. it? And what was your first experiences? Um, so uh, I, my father was in the Air Force. Um, he was an education officer at our Air Force Academy, which is based down at Point Cook. Um, I spent the, uh, the first seven years of my life living on the Air Force base at Point Cook, um, uh, the year that they started operating the CT4, actually. So, um, so I grew up around CT4s. Um, <laughs> they, were the, they were the landscape for you. Uh, they were. So, uh, so you know, for me, the CT4 is kind of my, my boyhood. Um, 35, 40 years later, um, <laughs> nothing's really changed. Um, uh, and I guess from that, you know, from the earliest I can remember, um, everything I remember is aeroplanes. Um, you know, we used to, my uh, parents' families were in Sydney, um, and back in the days where the Air Force used to, you know, fly families around as part of their regular, you know, trapezing herks and caribous around the countryside. Um, you know, we used to go up to Sydney probably two or three, four times a year yep. uh, on all the school holidays, you know, in the back of a herc or in the back of a caribou. Uh, and so all of my earliest memories of flight are in hercs and caribous. Um, you probably love that, whereas most, most military people you talk about travel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, no, not another herc. Um, so, you know, from, you know, from that earliest time, I just remember being around aeroplanes and, and having a... a a fascination with them, a passion for them, an interest in them, a curiosity about them, um, and that led to, I guess, me, you know, wanting to join the Air Force, um, you know, because that was kind of just a natural thing for me to want to do. Um, I wanted to be a pilot, 
Um, that was unsuccessful, unfortunately, due to uh, uh, medical issues, a uh, colour perception deficiency, as the Air Force calls it, basically colour blind, yeah. um, uh, but only to a degree that the Air Force wouldn't let me be a pilot. So obviously I can, I can fly civilly. Um, uh, I've got a uh, civil medical um, that allows me to fly both day and at night um, without any restriction. Um, so uh, when I didn't get in, the pilot, in as a pilot, um, I was you know, pretty devastated. You know, I'd sort of spent most of my my entire youth um, building up for that and uh, and it all sort of came crashing down. I didn't really know what to do after that. I ended up joining the Air Force anyway and doing uh, uh, communications and, and IT um, uh, mustering with our Air Force and uh, and sort of progressed on that path and didn't really think about flying after that other than you know trying to get a, a go in any aeroplane I could get a go at while I was in the Air Force. Um, and uh, it wasn't until I left the Air Force that I actually you know, could afford to learn to fly. So um, not long after leaving the Air Force, um, uh, yeah, I learned to fly uh, at Point Cook. Um, huh. uh, so I did my, my primary flight training down there, and uh, which was in the uh, what was our old ultralight federation, so um, which is now our recreational light sports type thing today. Um, and then progressed on to private pilots uh, license, um, and just flying around for fun, really, just myself and my wife, you know, going on trips around that type of thing. And then uh, we, we ended up moving to Canberra, and, and when we moved to Canberra. Um, it was a very different sort of experience. Um, like Canberra had a lot of aeroplanes, a lot of pilots that owned aeroplanes, um, but not a not very social scene. Like there wasn't much of an aero club and not really much going on there. So, um, you know, there was not very many aeroplanes to hire. So we ended up buying our, our first aeroplane, which is a, a, a light sports aircraft called a, a Sports Star. Um, I think I've got a different name today, but no, they were called a Sports Star back then. Um, it was and yours. It was, you could call it what you like. I'd call it what I want. Um, uh, it's now called Dimples. It was, uh, it was, it was damaged in the hailstorm in Canberra about you oh. know, when, when we owned it. Um, <laughs> a hard-earned name. <laughs> um, and so we had that aircraft for a couple of years. Uh, it was good to, you know, get an experience of what owning an aeroplane was all about. Um, uh, you know, the freedom of just being able to jump in an aeroplane and your own aeroplane and go for a fly and not have to think about who else has flown it and what they might have done to it and those types of things. So owning aeroplane was, um, uh, again, kind of that next thing of well, you just go for a flight, it's just what you do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we go, you know, we used to fly down to Marimbula or, you know, travels all over the country place up to Tamora, um, you know, to watch the flying displays up there. Um, and after about two years of sort of doing everything that you can in a light sports aeroplane, I wanted to sort of progress my flying. Uh, you know, I wanted to get into aerobatics and, and you know, start to explore, um, you know, some more realms of flying. Um, and the, the CT4 that we ended up buying was for sale in Canberra um, at the time. It had been sitting out in a paddock <coughs> um, just north of Canberra uh, for many years. We sort of saw it in this paddock when we used to drive past oh, and, right. and thought, that. oh, it's a bit of a bit of a sad thing to have, see it sitting out there. And yeah. so we we sold the uh, the Sports Star and uh, uh, approached the owner of the, the CT4 to see whether he was willing to sell it, and uh, and he did, which is which is nice. And, Parrot uh, rescue. Parrot rescue. <laughs> so we uh, we recovered it from this paddock where it had been sitting outside, and it's kind of a bit dishevelled looking and. You know, if if you're after an aeroplane that was, you know, a good-looking aeroplane, you wouldn't be buying this one. Um, you know, the, the paint had started to oxidise and come off, and um, it, had, it had had a pretty hard life sitting outside. So uh, we, we bought it because of the history of the aeroplane. Um, you know, if it had just been another, you know, one FTS um, hack, um, you know, we probably wouldn't have bought that one. But because of its history um, and it was unique, uh, you know, we bought that one. Um, and since then, we've, you know, we've we spent, you know, as you always do, a bit of money every year. Um, tweaking something and, and tidying it up. You know, we've done a bit of paint on it. We've replaced all of the canopy glass and, and windscreen glass, um, you know, and done kind of a bit to it every year, just yeah. to not only just keep it going, but kind of bring it up to a, a standard that we know we're happy with. Um, so, you know, it's, today it's a, you know, pretty, pretty 
good representation of the type. Um, it certainly is. It's sitting out there sparkling in the sunshine. <laughs> gorgeous. It does get a lot of love and attention. Yeah. Um, and it deserves uh, it. I think it's great. Uh, Matt's you know, given a good run in and, and uh, is too polite. So it's a very nicely, very, very nicely turned out aeroplane. On a day like today, you know, beautiful blue sky on a grassy a grassy airfield, having it parked out there in that uh, that uh, parrot scheme. It's, uh, yeah, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a gr- and it's a great ride too. Yeah. And all that flying, you know, I've... Uh, yeah, nearly got a thousand hours uh, in that aeroplane now, um, and it is uh, just an extension of me. Um, you know, I, I don't really think about flying it anymore, um, uh, and I'm very comfortable flying it. Uh, I, I enjoy the fact that you know I got to that point with it, um, uh, and then uh, we sort of progressed on and bought the bird dog, and I had to start all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it has it has a little wheel at the right end, doesn't it? Uh, yes, <laughs> which is a challenging end. And just to to go back a step in something we we were looking at earlier that the um you wanted to progress and you've progressed again um one of the interesting things is that you're doing more flying now in cooperation with the air force museum with a, with a display team but also flying dissimilar with with uh, alongside uh, wind geos, which is a much heavier uh very different handling airplane in a lot of ways but you do these dissimilar formations and so on yeah and that's um uh it's quite um, you know, unique some of the things that we do with the RAF Museum down at Point Cook. Um, you know, that was again something that you know I, I not not really ever set myself as a goal as you know that yeah. I want to go and fly my CT4 down at the RAF Museum. Um, it just sort of happened. You know, I, I was uh, I was fortunate enough to be sort of taken under the wing by a few different people. Um, you know, much more experienced pilots, um, and they sort of said, "Oh, what do you want to do?" And it's like, you know, you know, you know, want to do aerobatics, and yeah. so you know. Um, I was taught by an ex-RAF instructor on how to fly aerobatics in a CT4 and then, uh, you know, sort of, you know, was having fun doing that. Yep. And then I thought, oh, it'd be cool to do aerobatics in a display. And, yep. um, you know, as part of a display, not having never flown a display or having any sort of association with that. But, you know, that's something that I thought would be neat. Um, and then, you know, we were flying around on trips with our mates and, you know, sort of started doing some formation. And it's like, oh, this is pretty good fun. You know, I wouldn't mind doing this, you know. Um, and so I went and got my formation endorsement. Um, uh, and again, spent a lot of time with you know ex-RAF instructors, yeah. um, you know, being taught, you know, how to fly the CT4 in formation, not just how to fly formation, but that yeah. aeroplane in formation. Yeah. And that's um, probably just going back to something you mentioned earlier. It, it, it's going to be a very specific thing because it does have an incredibly small wing. I, I, we've said it several times, but I'll say it again. I've flown in formation <laughs> with other aircraft. And uh, you're kind of going, this is like putting a couple of little click together things together. You feel that close sometimes. Um, it is. Uh, it is quite unnerving when I first started doing my formation training um, and, you know, this little voice from the right-hand seat kind of constantly came in saying, okay, so when are we going to fly formation? Because um, you'd think you're in nice and tight and then you'd get this little, you know, blurb from the right-hand seat and it's like, okay, I guess we're not quite close enough then. Um, and it is it is quite discerning, but it, it's actually easier. And yeah, everyone, that, everyone that says this, uh, everyone that flies formation knows this is true. It doesn't make any sense. But the closer you are to the other aeroplane, the easier it is to fly formation. Because yeah, you are locked um, together in a sense, aren't you're you? You're locked together. You're in the same air. Um, your perception of what the other aircraft is doing is much more heightened because you are so close. You can yeah. actually see the control surfaces moving. Depending on what aeroplane you're flying off, you can actually see the controls. Yeah. Um, and so you, you've got, you're able to fly off the other aircraft um, so much better because you can see it yeah, more clearly, um, and you can react instantly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, initially it was it was quite frightening being that close <laughs> to another aeroplane, and I've actually noticed it having flown with um, 
uh, with guys who are you know used to flying in Harvards or windshields yeah. and those types of things, and we go and do some formation in the CT4. You can actually see them leaning over <laughs> in the cockpit because um, they're not used to being that close. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's you know it's it's a great aeroplane for formation. You know, the, I, I remember reading a story about the the Red Checkers when they first got the the CT4s and and they didn't think it was going to be possible to be able to do the routines because they didn't have enough power or anything yeah. else like that. And um, I know at the time the RAF were talking about the same thing down at CFS yeah. um, about you know perhaps doing some you know formation aerobatics with the CT4s and, and the RAF just gave up on it as a bit of a joke yeah. and then the Kiwis I think at some exchange thing that they were doing with the CFSs um, you know yeah. they told them what they were doing the RAF's like oh we didn't really think you could do that um, <laughs> and uh, you know so we, we've sort of taken that <coughs> um, and uh, you know, we're now doing formation aerobatics in the CT4. Yeah. Um, it's quite good fun. Uh, you know, we've tried to mix it up and, and do mixed formations. So we're doing uh, myself and uh, a friend of mine are doing you know uh, formation aerobatics, but with a CT4 and a windshield, um, which is very challenging, um, but also very re rewarding when you get it right. Um, but yeah, dissimilar type flying is um, uh, is quite challenging. Mm. Um, you know particularly when you're doing displays, um, yeah. because you've got lots of different states of energy at different times in the yeah. display. Um, and uh, I think we're, we're fortunate enough at the moment, the, uh, the OPSO down at the RAF Museum uh, is, a, is an ex-Rulate pilot. Yeah. Um, and uh, he, he told me a funny saying a, a few years ago about there's nothing more X than an ex-Rulate. Um, because <laughs> <you know, laughs> just about every pilot you meet in the Air Force is an ex-Rulate at some point. <laughs> uh, but he was actually Rulate lead, so yeah. um, he he's very smooth to fly behind. Uh, right. so, and we'll do mixed formations. Uh, on the weekend, we had a, a formation of two CT4s, two windshields, and two harbors, um, yeah, uh, doing uh, formation flyovers for um, you know, RAF Association, National yeah. Servicemen Association, Remembrance Day, these types of things. And that's something that we're sort of doing fairly regularly down at Point Cook now. Um, and that's, that's a terrific thing. And, and it's interesting, um, again, I, I know a lot of our listeners will be very aware this is not surprising, but a couple of key points that I pluck out there is that one of the things I enjoy about travelling around the British Commonwealth is that there's a lot of exchange, I mean, literal uh, exchange between air forces of, of, of air force pilots and, and crew. We've, in fact, we, we've, we've met that elsewhere on this trip, but also exchange of that kind of knowledge and, and, and so on. There's a friendly competition too, I think, uh, between, the, between the air forces, these things. Oh, they're doing that. Well, we need to see if we can do that all better, yeah. which is a good, it's a good spur for progress too. Yeah. Um, but another thing is actually the, the idea of um, both civilian and, and military pilots doing displays together, which is less common than it should be. A lot of uh, civilian pilots are ex-military, uh, or like yourself, Matt, you know, not, not um, military flyers, but with a, with a background and understanding of that sort of culture. Um, but a lot of military uh, outside the sort of display flying are very wary of civilians. They, they don't follow the they don't follow the rules, and that kind of thing comes up. And um, it, it's good to set that precedent. And it, again, a, a wonderful quote that, that Matt knows. I don't think Dave would have seen this, which. There was a discussion about flying the CT4s and, and the wind and the windshields for um, at, the, at Point Cook for displays, and, and the question was, well, do you private owners do you fly the aeroplanes down there, presumably, then you hand them over to Air Force pilots to fly them for the display? And from a civilian point of view, no one so that's a reasonable assumption, but no, it's much better that the Air Force is a prepared to play, and and it works. I think that's the real tester: is it's a successful formation achievement. You, you guys are going to be at tomorrow flying there, I believe. Yeah, and um, we we've got a, a team now that we. Call the, the Heritage Trainers team. Um, uh, when we're at full force, uh, it's, a, it's an eight-ship formation. Uh, is, is everybody got to be called Matt, or do you allow other names? I uh, know we generally call everyone Matt. Uh, so we, <laughs> we have three Matts in the team, um, and uh, so it's just Matt, 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 and Matt. Um, and uh, just what aeroplane they're flying differs. Um, but we we sort of started this at Tomora uh, four years ago. Right. Um, 
uh, with uh, myself uh, and a couple of others were sort of talking about uh, you know doing a CT4 wind jewel display yeah. at tomorrow as part of the first Warbirds Down Under air show. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we, we put together uh, a three ship. There was myself and a CT4. We were supposed to have two CT4s and two windshields, um, uh, but there was a, a pilot conflict. Um, so yeah. BD was supposed to fly the... Uh, so Peter Clements, who's one of the RAF Museum pilots, yeah. uh, was supposed to fly the CT4 as part of our display, but had a conflict with the next part of the display where yeah. he was flying something else. So, yeah. uh, so having never flown in an air show display before where I was supposed to be number four, uh, I ended up leading the formation display. Um, <laughs> And so we ended up with myself uh, and uh, the RAF Museum's Windjill yep. and Matt Griggs' Windjill. Yeah. Uh, um, that sort of progressed over time, and we just kind of just kept adding aeroplanes um, uh, as more people started, you know, flying with us and sort of getting up to speed. You know, the next air show would come along, and I was like, "Oh, it'd be cool if we could another add another aeroplane." So, um, you know, we ended up with you know a four ship and then a yep. five ship and then a six ship, and then a seven ship, and uh, <laughs> it all sort of culminated at the Centenary of Military Aviation show at Point Cook last year where all of the stars aligned and we could get everyone and their aeroplanes together at the same place. Which is quite um, difficult to do because people have commitments, absolutely. And, and even the Air Force Museum, which obviously works very hard to provide a, uh, a core uh, of activity, um, most of the pilots, apart from the operations office, the OPSO, uh, are um, uh, reserve officers usually with other jobs, so um, can be hard to get it, bring it together, so the stars yeah. indeed aligned. <coughs> Um, yeah, and you know, for the rest of us, you know, we're all uh, private owners scattered all over the countryside. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we wanted to do, particularly for Point Cook, was to, to honour the training heritage there, um, and particularly the, you know, the the fact that you know, at that point in time, for 60 years, the Windjill and CT4 were really the the mainstay of training, you know, Air Force pilots. And uh, we thought it'd be cool if we could get, you know, the biggest formation we could get together, um, not knowing that it would actually work or not, or whether the Air Force would allow it. But um, so we just had this idea, and uh, so we ended up with a uh, an eight ship formation, three Windjills, and, and five CT4s. Um, and that team sort of ebbs and flows in size over the time. Um, uh, but yeah, we will have a, a seven ship formation at, at, right. uh, at tomorrow um, this week um, with the three windshields and, and four CT4s. It's an excellent noise, I should say. It's, a, it's a, yeah. absolutely it's a good one to see. Um, but uh, it, for those that haven't seen seen it live, um, it's it's a very nice uh, display, um, and it gives off a really good noise. You, you, you know, people are often rude about smaller, flatter engines from the from the big military engine point of view, and sometimes with justification. But you get a it, yeah, you've got some good treble and you've got some good bass there from the, yeah, <laughs> from the wind jewels. The mix of the parrots and the wind is actually a good mix because you've got yeah the the really raspy note of the CT4. The the Australian CT4s uh, operated with uh, with six straight out exhausts. Um, uh, all of the other air forces operated with the standard sort of Continental Cessna. Um, oh, okay. Uh, you know, sort of three into one muffler yeah. type arrangement. Um, uh, I know the RAF were having a lot of issues cracking mufflers, so they ended up just ripping them all off and just putting straight out stacks on them. Um, so it, it sounds like a drag car. Um, <laughs> it's 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 got a real raspy note to it. Yeah. Um, you can hear a CT4 coming from miles away, um, and hear it when it's gone for for miles. But it's got a very you know very high raspy note, yeah. uh, whereas the windjill has got you know big. You know, 985 ram, radial, you know, rumble. thumping rumble, yeah. uh, and you put them together and you actually get quite a good sound. Yeah, uh, you get 
seven or eight of them together and it, it makes it a very unique sound. It does actually, it stops the crowd, um, which, which is often a problem with, with a trainer group uh, in, in, a, in a big display when everybody's there, or suppose, I'm told, everybody's there for the big <laughs> jets, not me, but there you go. Um, and that's, you know, one of the other things that we, uh, particularly for the air shows, is, um, you know, the CT4 is, is a very small aeroplane. Um, yes. You know, it's, it doesn't have a lot of presence when it's doing a display. Yeah. Um, and air shows in generally, you know, one of the things that, that we like to display is not only the the aircraft individually, but you know what they were used for, um, yeah. and you know formation training was a, a very critical component of, of pilot training in the air force. It's something that you start doing as part of learning to fly, same as aerobatics. So we have a, a, a bit of a mixed display where we do some formation as well as have uh, CT4 and windshield do solo aerobatics as part of the um, uh, display sequence. So you get a you know for, for the crowd they get a good uh, appreciation for what you know a, a military trainee would be doing during their flight training. They'd be doing some uh, formation flying, they'd be doing some aerobatics, um, as well as other general handling and those types of things. So, um, you know, it's, you know, it's something that we've worked on for quite a few years to put together. Um, it's, a, it's a good display that's fairly consistent. You know, we don't have to change, we don't change it very much, um, although we've introduced a few new moves oh, for this weekend. Oh, we'll look weekend. forward to those, yes, um, absolutely. It's always good to have the new moves. Well, because, you know, a seven-ship formation is actually quite hard to make. It's an odd number. It's an odd number. So when you're trying to make shapes out of it, uh, and I'd been in the US recently and seen the Breitling team about oh, yes. four different times in a couple of different locations, <laughs> uh, and they operate a seven ship. And it's yeah. like, oh, so we got a copy of their book and stole some of their ideas. So. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's a time-honored aerobatic tradition. I, I mean, that's just a point for people who may not be familiar with aerobatic flying. A couple of pick up on a couple of points from Matt there, and maybe I'll be wrong and you can correct me. But one is if you're doing aer- if you're doing formation work, actually the best position to put the newer guy is. In lead, um, uh, no, no. There you go. Okay. <laughs> no, the um, uh, and this it's actually a bit of a a myth that right. people think. So uh, you would think that you would put the most inexperienced guy in the lead, but the, the leader has actually got the hardest job, and you want the guy with the most experience in the lead because he's fly he's not flying one aeroplane. Your lead, you're flying six, seven, or eight aeroplanes. You need to know all the guys that are flying with you, what their capabilities are, what the aeroplane's performance uh, yep. parameters are for all of them. Um, you need to talk for eight aeroplanes because uh, yep. you're responsible for navigation and communication and all these yep. other bits and pieces. So uh, generally we'd put um, you know, the, the least experienced guy, the least current guy in the number two slot, which is on the, the echelon right yep. um, of the lead. Um, generally, because in, in most of the, like particularly CT4 and most of the training aeroplanes that are, that are side-by-side seating, yep. you're sitting on the left-hand side of the aeroplane and for some bizarre reason, looking at the left-hand side of the cockpit is more natural than looking at the right-hand side of the okay. cockpit. Yeah. Um, most guys find that. Um, it's like when we roll, our preference is to roll left than right. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but that's just the way that it works. Um, so that would be the position that you... I mean, that's where you learn to fly formation yep. Is, yep. is in that position, that right. number two position. Um, and so... Uh, that's where we all sort of start up and then yep. as you kind of get growing more experience because as the further you get out on a formation the more difficult it is as well because um, well, if you're on. number two or number three out in a formation you've, you're flying off someone else who's flying off someone else who's flying off someone else and so to make sure that you don't get you know this kind of waggly wing going yeah. um, you've kind of got to fly off the guy that you're flying off look through them look through the next guy look at lead and maintain a position when you're flying different types it gets very difficult because in the ct4 it's easy because you just line all the heads up and everything yeah. will be okay and you can see everyone when you get you know, a CT4 next to a Windjill, next to a Harvard, next to a Parrot, um, you can't see the lead because he's hidden behind these two gigantic aeroplanes. So it becomes quite difficult. Um, And so, yeah, you you don't want to put guys out there that that haven't really got the experience. Um, 
And just to, to try and recover some of my credibility there, then, um, <laughs> um, so what you were describing there is, you know, for those that are not familiar, it's very easy to get a sort of a wave building up, so the guy on the outer end is going to be moving up a lot and down, mm. um, trying to recover into position. And that's the thing is you don't want to be, uh, you want to be locked in, as you said earlier in a way, the tighter you are, the, the, the better it is, and you're going to be more responsive to immediate moves. The other example is, I think, always uh, used, and I, I'm pretty sure this is correct, Matt, <laughs> is that, uh, you know, you're going to have to turn sooner or later and one of the critical things a leader has to do is to make the speed a viable speed for the guy and thinking, if you will, of a, a row of, uh, of soldiers. The classic example is the guy on the inside of the turn has to mark time by you know, stamping on the spot and the guy on the outside is having to go double the speed. Yep. You cannot do that in a fixed-wing aircraft. You have to have the guy on the inside doing it something above the minimum speed and the guy on the outside has to be doing something below the maximum speed on, on cruise. So the pilot, the, the lead formation in the middle has to make sure that he's got a very tight window that's going to work for the two ends. This is correct, I believe? Uh, that is absolutely correct. <laughs> um, and particularly when you've got uh, types that are, um, you know, training types that are you know generally underpowered um, for what you want them to be, like every aeroplane is underpowered. Um, <laughs> but particularly trainers um, tend to be underpowered um, and yeah so for the guys on the outside of the turns um, particularly if you're doing reversing maneuvers where you're going from you know a very low power setting to yeah. a very high power setting in a very short period of time trying to maintain your plane because not yeah. only are you going slow but you're also flying lower yep. as you turn the formation the guy on the outside's not only got to go faster he's also got to climb yep. um, and so it's yeah as as you get further out um, the lead's got to be thinking about that in yeah. terms of you know roll rates, yeah. um, you know, am I am I going to roll? You know, the CT4 roll's got a very rapid roll rate, yeah. um, but if you've got two wind wheels hanging off you, you can't roll at the same rate that you would if you had two CT4s rolling off you because you know wind wheels got a much slower roll rate, you know, yeah. much more inertia, um, and so these are all the things that the lead needs to yeah. needs yeah. to go through. Um, well, I think I'm corrected now, and I'll never absolutely. make that mistake again. <laughs> There's another thing with the, um, the the formation aerobatics, doing a loop, uh, the the lead. In, in a box formation, um, is actually flying slow uh, at a lower power than yes. than the guy that's sitting behind him in, mm. in the in the number four is it number four slot. Yep. And with the Harvards, apparently, um, no one had ever done that until 1965. And you know they've been around since the 40s. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and it was the it was the first Red Checkers team that developed that. That, that previously for a couple of decades um, been known as the Central Flying School formation aerobatic team. Yep. Which snappy, snappy Air Force. <laughs> uh, work yeah. And and uh, you know the 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 um, the team of 1965 re revolutionised um, display flying in New Zealand, um, which basically in two reasons. One, they came up with a team name, which was um, not as people think. Everyone sees the red and white checks on the front, and they go, "Oh, they got the name from the, that." But that that came afterwards, and the checkers was because they were Central Flying School pilots. Uh, the whole, as you know, the whole um, purpose of Central Flying School is to check other yep. uh, pilots and, and, and instructors yeah. and make sure they're doing the job right. And um, so they instructed instructors, and they were known as the checkers. Okay. And uh, like apparently, right back to the RF um, Central mm. Flying School, they were known colloquially as the checkers. Okay. And um, so these guys, they said, well, we're the checkers, uh, and you know, why don't we call it? and oh and the, the chap who was one of the team members, he was doodling on a, on a napkin in a restaurant when they're trying to come up with this team name and he, he realised that the Harvards they were flying had uh, red, grey, red, grey, red, grey um, because of the way that the, the yep. colour scheme was on right. them with the, with the 
we call it red, but it's actually, um, I think they call it international orange, but it looks like yeah. red yeah. on yep. the wingtips. And, and it looked like a checker pattern when it was in a box formation because okay. they were trying to work out this box formation. So, yep. so that's where that came from. Uh, and then they put the, the checks on the cows later. But anyway, that's by, by the by. But they worked out how to actually get over a loop without hitting each other or without dr the number four falling right. out of it. And, yep. and they started doing this in the... Um, in the in the display um, routine, and and you know made New Zealand air shows much much more interesting than than they had been, and uh, they they got their name uh, you know real good name for themselves. When the uh, when the air trainers were being worked up for um, display flying, same thing. They didn't think they'd have enough power to get that yep. number four through in, in the box, and, and you know it's, it's interesting because I've, I talked to both. Um, team members, uh, the 1965 team with the Harvards and the 1981 team with the um, with the air trainers, and they had the same problem yep. and, and and both overcame it. So that's quite interesting, isn't it? It but is. It's, a, it's an interesting point. I, I think there is that we, we tend to think of stuff being the way it is, and it's probably been that way for a long time. But just listen to what you're saying there, Dave, that aerobatics and formation aerobatics is now very codified. And, and uh, I think it's also fair to say pretty much one international language. You might actually be talking to someone who talks another. It doesn't, you know, will obviously speak English if they're in, in civil aviation, but comes from a different background. But the, uh, famously, the hand sim sim symbols are very similar. And, and the, the way you put a formation together, how it's structured is pretty standard but I, I think what you're saying David I'd, I'd agree is that the idea of those kind of formations are probably a post-World War II development in, in, in that kind of demonstration and generally people didn't feel the need to do that kind of formation work that was aerobatic at the same time a lot of people doing aerobatic formation I'm not saying that didn't happen it certainly did but generally in World War II it was a bunch of instructors doing stuff to either demonstrate or show but not for entertainment purposes and stuff like a yep. loop which has uh, no military value really um, in, in, uh, wouldn't have been something you do and they probably would look at it and go that's not a good idea and I know from Harvard teams that it can be very it can be one of the most challenging bits of the, of the display flying uh, around and that's actually leads into a question for Matt here which is that obviously you've come through a civilian background with a military aircraft to working with military pilots you've obviously most uh, tell me correct me but uh, most of your training in aerobatics and so on has been through the military Australian military regime primarily so um, would you say that's a yeah it was it was essentially using the uh, I guess the doctrine uh, yeah. from you know one FTS um, the, the instructors that I had were um, uh, particularly for the CD4 I, I you know sort of was fortunate enough to meet people who had had a, a military instructing background on the yeah. CT4 who had also were still now instructing civilian right. um, as part of one of their, you know, part of their roles. So, um, uh, you know, for me it was initially, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to fly CT4 or if I'm going to fly aerobatics in the CT4, um, who better to teach me to do that than the people who used to instruct people on how to do yeah. aerobatics yeah. in a CT4? Because yeah. you know it is—it's different to fly aerobatics in that than a you know than a decathlon or yeah. a Satabia yeah. or a Pitts or something like that. It's—it's yeah. it's got some you know vices. Um, uh, you know it doesn't spin very well at all. Right. Um, so you know that's things you've got to be very wary of. Uh, whereas you know things like the Act 52 uh, will spin very well. You know got very yeah. good spin characteristics and handling characteristics and those types of things. So um, uh, so. You know, all of, predominantly all of my aerobatic flying has been, you know, in the CT4. Um, I've experienced other aircraft. Yeah. Um, um, and formation was the same. It was, yeah. you know, if I'm going to hunt out to do 
if my intention is to do formation in a, uh, formation with a CT4, yep. um, you know, I want to be taught by people who, you know, that's, that was their job was to teach formation in the CT4. Um, and with the, I guess, not really with the intention, but, you know, kind of how it ended up was yep. that, you know, as you said, you know, we, we currently fly, you know, formation, do the flying displays with, with current Air Force pilots, um, which is uh, somewhat ironic, but because um, <laughs> that's that's what I wanted to be doing, and and you know it's probably something that I wouldn't have been doing had I actually you know been successful in becoming a pilot in the air force. Absolutely, it's an interesting um, irony there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you know I'm I'm now doing for fun and my own personal pleasure, although paying the bill. Yeah. Um, you know something that you know I always wanted to do, and it was you know getting there was it's it's one of the thing I've, one of the things I found is that if if you want to do something, there's a, there's a way of doing it, yeah, um, yeah. and it doesn't matter what it is. Um, yeah. You know, I, I'm doing things today. You know, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to display it tomorrow um, at this part of the museum up there. Um, you know, both with the CT4 and the Bird Dog. Um, you know, eight years ago, I was uh, you know an ice cream licking crowd member. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sitting there watching from the other side, going, "Oh, yeah. that's really cool." Yeah. Um, not yeah. ever imagining that I'd actually ever meet any of the people that are involved in it or end up flying there um, and flying with them and, and most of them now who are you know good friends. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, a, a quick plug for the the Antique Aeroplane Association, oh. of which I'm the president of. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, no, quite right. Tell us know, a bit about them. Um, <laughs> Uh, so that, that was a, a group that we, we joined. Uh, so the Antique Aeroplane Association of Australia is uh, it's in its 41st year this year. Um, it was uh, grown in the sort of early 70s, like a lot of associations were um, for things that were kind of becoming unique and odd and old aeroplanes. <coughs> Ironically, to... back in the early 70s, you know, things like tiger moths and chipmunks were considered old aeroplanes. You know, they're, they're 20 or 30 years old. Uh, today, they're, you know, 70 years old yeah. um, and not really very much has changed. You know, we still have to, you know, deal with regulators about how yeah. they think about old aeroplanes. Um, but uh, it's it's basically a big social group um, of people who love old aeroplanes. Um, it's, uh, it's a very diverse group of people. You know, we've got people that um, uh, own... Mustangs and Kitty Hawks and T28s and Lockheed 12s and Harvards, and we've got people that own Cessna 120s and Osters and um, Cessna 195s and Piper Pacers, all of these different types of aeroplanes. And, and, al and also, you uh, you have members because you have one here who don't own any aeroplanes at we all. We have lots of members that don't own aeroplanes. Don't fly, but are very made very welcome. Uh, and I'd say actually to the extent that you know our partners, my wife is a, a, a member and very much enjoys that side of it as well. And because it is a very welcoming group, and I think it's a good point. It's often a problem that there's pilots and others, and that's mm. not the case with the antique. No, and I mean we we were sort of encouraged to join the antiques through uh, uh, one of. Uh, Karen's work colleagues, yep. um, uh, Filthy Barbary, um, and uh, you know we turned up to an event, which just happened to be the AGM got elected on the committee, and you know <laughs> that was that was eight years ago, and we've never looked back. Um, but uh, the old the old invite them along and get them on the committee. That's trick. right. Um, but you know the reality is, you know we were you know we were welcomed. Um, yeah. uh, we you know we're given. You know I've had so many opportunities to you know to meet people uh, talk to people who have had great experiences um, go for rides in you know amazing airplanes um, uh, and there's no 
egos, there's no mm. personalities, uh, I mean there's some personalities, but um, you know, not the sort that you'd expect, you know, whenever someone turns up to one of our flyings, they're just an antiquer and, you know, we yeah. all sit around and, you know, enjoy each other's company and, and, and enjoy our aeroplanes. Um, I'd, I'd just cap that with what Matt, I'd agree with it absolutely, um, and uh, it is a very diverse group in a, in a good way and uh, very inclusive. I think it's a little, for those that have been there, it's a little bit of what makes Oshkosh, the AA air venture every year, a great thing, which is everybody leaves their other stuff behind at the gate as it were and, and it's all about the aeroplanes in the good way and there's a huge behind the social element there's a huge exchange of good practice and knowledge and there's a degree of um, uh, shall we say a good good self-policing you know where, where people need help or advice that they might not actually ask for it's given in the right context and, and people do get help for that kind of um, thing but also those many more who ask for uh, you know skill growth and as you said I think something I'd like to pick up on you know, we're here today now because um, we decided that there were some good ideas that could happen, and that's why Dave was to get across the Tasman. We didn't think, we thought it might happen, um, and we were able to put together a deal. So, absolutely, Matt, you're, you're quite right. If you want something and you're prepared to put the work in and the time and, and get people to work with you in a good way, and um, other thing, other conversations with, with other people on this trip has been very much about no, we didn't do it on our own. It's not me. I might be the guy at the pointy end, or the, the guy who built the aeroplane, or the guy who flo- the, flew the aeroplane, or the guy who crossed the ocean to do this. But with that help, you can do some pretty amazing things. Um, Absolutely, um, and you know, it's predominantly through um, you know members of of the association that uh, have allowed me to experience things that I've thought. I want to have a go at that. Yeah. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's now led to you know me seeing kitty hawks and mustangs and stuff. <laughs> and going, I want to have a go at that. Um, yeah, there's but, a lot of gateway drug aeroplanes, aren't there? Um, but you know, you, you yeah. talk to the people that own these aeroplanes, and uh, and if you know if you're serious about it, and they show that you're serious about doing it, um, you know they'll tell you what the process yeah. is to do it. Um, you know what what steps you need to take, what aeroplanes you need to fly, who you need to fly with. Yeah. Um, you know what instructors you should go and spend time with. You know. What guys who fly them you should spend time with and talking to so um you know they it's kind of another one of those well it's not it's it's not an impossibility to think that yeah. you know sometime in the next you know 15 or 20 years that i might get to fly a mustang um yeah uh you know if the airplanes are going to be around they get looked after better than anything else um that's flying or driving or sitting around um and uh, as we as we jokingly said to a few of the uh, the older boys last weekend, someone's got to fly them in twenty years' time. <laughs> it might as well be us. Yeah. Absolutely, that's yeah, true. Yeah, yeah I, that's I can, true. I can actually say uh, there's a there's a, a good friend of mine uh, in another country, and um, I remember sitting having a beer with him in a in a um, in a bar and. Uh, somewhere in a land where you have those kind of bars and he was saying you know one day I want to I hope to be flying Mustangs regularly I'd really like to do that and that's what he does as a day job now he's he's a Mustang pilot flying for an organization for, for a day and it's a lot of work the other thing I think I'd, I'd bring in there which we'd all agree is that um, I've, I've been lucky enough to fly some very un, in fly in some very unusual uh, aircraft I'm not a pilot I've got a little bit of stick time where I've scared the p- other people in the aeroplane usually um, I generally get it taken off me quite quickly I'm definitely going to stick to writing I can do that <laughs> but um, I've been lucky to fly some fascinating really important historic aircraft and I've had people saying oh you're really lucky to do that and I go yes 
and I appreciate the luck, but there was also an awful lot of work behind it, an awful lot of organising things. Not for me, um, because again, most of the time I've flown those things, it's to share it with other people. I think another point, again, at the risk of sort of being all, all touchy-feely about it, but one of the great things is if you're sharing stuff, it comes back round. I've oh, passed on stuff to people, I've helped people with restorations, um, and it passed on advice and, and knowledge and so on that I've been able to or contact, and then other people have done great favours for me, and that's how those opportunities happen, I think. Yeah, I think it's um, yeah, the, the the lucky thing is something that yeah. you know we hear a lot. It's yeah. like, oh, you know, you're so lucky to, to do this, and it's like, well, actually, there's been no luck involved in it whatsoever. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a lot of hard work and yeah. uh, commitment. Um, you know, the the work that we put into, you know, to, I guess, you know, kind of look back over the over the years and, and the work that we put into, you know, I guess, getting what I do today, yeah. do today, um, you know, for fun as a private pilot, um, has you know taken a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, a you're, lot you're, of you're making your luck, and, and that's exactly, again with yeah. Dave, Dave being here with the bringing the wings over Australia project together as part of Wings Over New Zealand was very much making luck happen in, in that sense. <coughs> Yeah, um, there is a famous quote about making your own luck, but it's, yeah. that's exactly what it is. It's um, you know you put in the work uh, and the opportunities. You know, the work that you put in allows those opportunities to exist. Um, yeah. uh, and you know, you know, you know where we are today. You know, sort of sitting you know with my aeroplanes is yep. uh, is as a result of all of that. So. Exactly, and I'd just like to say, um, you know, for a long time now, I've actually been thinking with my show to do a show focusing on the CD4 air trainer. Uh, because it's a quintessential piece of New Zealand history and um, I hadn't quite gotten around to getting that started uh, and, and uh, I'm, I'm really, really pleased that I have been able to record something about the air trainer with someone like yourself who is not only from the other side of the Tasman enjoying it, um, loving it and knows so much about it but you have got the right attitude that you'll keep on looking after this aircraft you, um, you're sharing it with other people uh, you're involved with the um, Antique Aircraft Association and um, this is an antique of the future mm. and um, you know I, I, I really from a personal point of view having known Pat Monk so well uh, growing up next door to him and he was like a grandfather to us really uh, us kids and um, I, I reckon that he's up there very proud of seeing people like yourself that are carrying on his work and I'm sure Henry Melissa probably is as well but Absolutely yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hope so, I mean you know for us it's um you know, I, I really enjoy you know taking people flying. Um, uh, I love talking about the aeroplanes. Um, you know, I really enjoy, particularly going to air shows where you know we meet um, a lot of people who have you know worked on them. Um, uh, you know, they they learnt to fly in them, or their you know their parents learnt to fly in them. Um, uh, I had a, 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 one of those kind of unique experiences that you have. They sort of only read about it and you go, oh, it can't be possibly a true story. Um, I was recently in, on a trip in the states and I was passing through the airport at Phoenix um, on a layover from Vegas to Houston um, and dropped into the Admirals Club just to get something to drink and a, and a bite to eat and uh, <clears throat> sat down uh, next to a, a chap who you know, said good morning and I said g'day, how you going? And he goes, oh you're from Australia? I said, um, yeah. And he goes, oh, I spent some time in Australia. I said, oh yeah, well, you know, whereabouts? And he goes, oh, up in Darwin. I said, oh, okay, what were you doing up there? He goes, oh, I was in instructing pilots. And I said, oh, you know, on what? I said, I, you know, do a bit of flying. Um, and he goes, on your, on your cam bearers. Uh, he was, he was a, a B-57 pilot that was on exchange with the RAF um, and was doing work with the, with the Canberra, Bob, uh, wow. Canberra squadrons up in Darwin. And um, uh, I said, oh, what are you doing up there? And he goes, oh, we're, we're coming up with, um, you know, close air support tactics for the Canberra because 
that's all we had as a bomber, and that's what the RAF wanted to do. You know, this was leading into you know the Thai um, yeah. situation, uh, and then into Vietnam. Uh, so he was working with with the RAF on coming up with tactics on on how to use the Canberra in that sort of environment. Um, and he said, yeah, so you know, we we worked up all of these and ended up going into Thailand and then uh, into Vietnam. Um, and you know, mentioned he spent a bit of time in Vietnam. He said, oh, you might be interested in one of my aeroplanes. Um, and uh, you know, scrolled through my phone and found a picture of the bird dog and showed him a picture of the bird dog and you know, tears start to well up in his eyes and I'm thinking, oh God, here we go. <laughs> and uh, he goes, I've got about four and a half thousand hours flying those things in Vietnam uh, as a forward air controller and instructing the South Vietnamese. Um, and I was like, that's that doesn't happen. <laughs> this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, I'm halfway around the world talking to a guy who's got you know four and a half hours. Four and a half thousand hours flying these things in combat, right. um, and you know we we got the chat for you know five or ten minutes, and you know, we could have spent all day talking. Uh, sure. Well, I could have spent all day listening because yeah. you know uh, I'm sure he would have had some amazing stories to tell. Um, but yeah, there's you know you just meet these people yep. and you have these experiences, and um, you know it kind of makes the history of the aeroplane real. Um, yeah. And yeah. you know, so to be able to you know, for me to be able to meet someone, you know, you read all these stories about what these aeroplanes did and what people did with them, but to actually be able to meet someone who flew them in combat, you know, doing what it was designed to do, yeah. Um, yeah. it just adds a whole new world to it all. It does, so, it um, you know, so, you know, for me, it's, if we can keep these aeroplanes flying, you know, in a hundred years time, I'd like to think that, you know, the next custodian of the aeroplane um, can, you know, can tell some cool stories about, you know, what it did and who owned it and, um, you know, where it came from, because, uh, I guess you know, as as most of us that own these aeroplanes think of ourselves as you know I, I, I'm the current owner. Yeah. Um, the aeroplane is definitely going to outlive me. Um, you know the parrot's got another thirteen thousand hours left on that spar. It's going to keep flying for many hundreds of years, I'd expect. Um, so you know you'd like to think that yeah, as time goes on, you know people will keep keep that interest, keep that passion, um, keep that history alive, and it's it's better to see it in the air than you know in a museum somewhere yep. um, absolutely because that's where they that's where they're supposed to be they're supposed to be flying so it's interesting i, I think that's a good point is we, we're very keen that we actually have static museums as well of course i know matt would agree with me that for preserving stuff because we need to keep some stuff and we can't fly them all much as uh, there is a temptation there i know <laughs> um but yeah and something like the ct4 or the bird dog there's plenty of opportunity to have the aircraft in museums i've, I've seen major bung lies uh, bird dog in the uh, naval aviation museum at yep. pensacola that's got an amazing story uh, behind it about him landing it on an American carrier at the end of the Vietnam War. It's good to have that aeroplane in a museum static there, perhaps, um, but also to have them seeing them fly. And it brings people's experience to life. And I think it's sort of taking what Matt's just said in a different way. You're getting this back and forth between it makes people, it validates people's stories for other people, but also the, the, the aircraft becomes a key to this. And, the, and it also gets us to look at things again, because you have the experience of the aircraft. I know there's a lot of aeroplanes I've learned about because a friend owns them or someone's shown me this aircraft. And I go, well, I didn't really know much about CT4. Didn't know much about the CT4. It's just part of the landscape. Mm. Um, and to those outside Australasia, the CT4 has a place in Australia and New Zealand uh, aviation culture that say the Tiger Moth does in the UK or the, the T6 in, in, um, in America or the Harvard in, in, uh, in Canada. So uh, it's, it's very important to us is the, the way those aircraft are over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, um, well, I reckon we should wrap this up now. We've got I, I think so because it's a lovely day outside and we have an aeroplane that works. So why are we doing <laughs> talking? <laughs> I think some people should go flying.
I, I just want to say thank you very much, Matt. It's oh, been, my pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your um, your thoughts on the aircraft and and on flying and. Yeah, great stuff. Really good to have a bit of a trans-Tasman conversation on the CT4. I think it's been very constructive and, and, um, <laughs> and helpful. And it's good to, I think, you know, once we get past the van to Kiwis and Aussies would agree, it's a great aeroplane and we're both very proud to have them uh, operational. So uh, let's yeah. go and see if this one's still working properly. Yeah, should be. It was yesterday. Thank you very much, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That was the Wings Over New